Live the life you love. Hello world and welcome to another episode of Making It with Chris G, where we have conversations with people in the world of entertainment who are making it from behind the scenes to the spotlight, sharing their stories and insight to help you get one step closer to making it. What's going on, y'all? We got another exciting and fun episode for all of you with Derek Sivers. This conversation was full of amazing tips, stories, and philosophies for musicians and really just for life. Uh, Derek Sivers has been a musician, producer, circus performer, entrepreneur, TED speaker, and book publisher. He's the founder of and started CD Baby and Host Baby, his audiobook, Anything You Want, uh, or audiobook or book, Anything You Want, tells you a story of everything he learned while starting, growing, and selling the business CD Baby. So it's a story from a little while ago, so we didn't really dive into that story too much today. Uh, my goal was to pick his brain with some some questions that will be new to the listeners and hopefully some some new stories that you guys may have not heard of before. Uh, if you haven't heard the CD Baby story, uh, it's definitely really inspiring, and I highly recommend checking it out. Um, you can check out the book. Um, he has a lot of Derek has a lot of great lessons he's learned from that experience that he shares. So you can check that out at sivers.org forward slash a he also has a new book coming out called your music and people which we dive into like a little bit in this episode um you'll, you'll be able to learn more about this book at sivers.org along with a ton of other great information he has available there from his blogs to book notes to his podcast and so much more and just a side note uh it's me personally recommending the books um Derek didn't do the episode to to promote or push a book. Um, he loves doing these podcasts because of the people that he meets uh, through doing them. And he shares his contact information on the episode. It's also available on the front page of his website. So I definitely want to encourage you guys, um, you know, if you learned something, you're inspired by this podcast or some of the stories and lessons, definitely reach out because he really enjoys meeting the people that that, that he meet, gets to meet through through doing these these podcasts and interviews. So before we get into that interview, um, my current experiment uh, with the podcast, as I mentioned last time, is to go monthly. Um, I'm about to be a dad, and that is going to take up happily and gladfully uh, take up a lot of my time. And I want to dedicate a lot of time to just being being a parent uh, and really being all in, and which we talk about a little bit in this, this episode as well. So you'll see the podcast once a month, but with that, I'm also want to dedicate more time on content on YouTube. So a little experimenting with YouTube versus a weekly podcast and also overcoming my, my shyness of being on camera. I'll, trust me, I will use as many slides and <laughs> pictures as possible so my face is not on camera. Man, maybe that'd be a great experiment for me to to work on to get over uh before we get to the conversation with derek uh, as always please take a second to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening whether it's on apple music on spotify on apparently it's on iHeartRadio as well so wherever you're listening subscribe to the podcast and if you could leave us a review that would be amazing uh so if you leave a rating and a review uh hopefully it's five stars and even if it's just as little as short as we love this podcast or uh leaving a couple of emojis um those reviews really help us a lot get up on the iTunes rankings and get more people to, to see it and have more people learn from these amazing interviews and these amazing guests that we have on the show. So thank you all for that and for all those reviews. And as always, all the show notes to this episode will be available at makingitwithchrisg.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero nine seven for episode number 97. This conversation was so much fun and I'm excited to share this with everyone listening. So enjoy this episode with the amazing Derek Sivers. So I'm working on a 
about page currently for for my podcast site and i discovered your uh what i'm doing now page and i love that concept <laughs> i guess to, to kind of start off um i think it'd be a good way to get maybe catch people up to what you're up to now but what isn't what i'm doing now page and is it something that you think musicians should consider adding to their sites as well ah good question okay well let me tell the reasoning behind it and okay. then you can decide for yourself absolutely <laughs> so um you know, I think that we have connections and acquaintances around the world. You know, maybe we'll call them friends, but that's uh, <laughs> debatable. But people that check in with you every now and then and say like, hey, what's going on? What you doing? And there are friends of mine that I care about a lot. And, uh, you know, but we don't talk every week. They live across the world or whatever. So every month or so, I wonder what they're up to and what's going on. But if you look at somebody's social media stream – you just see random stuff, you right. know, like that, what they had for deal. lunch today or reacting to something they saw on TV today. It doesn't give the bigger picture of like, no, like what's up with you mm. these days? What are you, how are you doing and what's going on with you? Um, so the original inspiration was that, that I found that I wished that my friends and acquaintances would have some kind of url i could go to mm -hmm. instead of having to ask them every time like hey man how are you and having them you know having to tell the whole tale i thought wouldn't it be cool if just like we all had a page on our personal websites it was like slash now yeah. and kind of like it's kind of a standard right like slash about and slash contact right uh tend to be like the typical pages where you'll find about somebody or how to contact somebody so um but then i also so that was the bigger reason but there was also this reason where people would say like, hey, man, I've got this business idea. I want you to know if you want to get involved with this or, <laughs> hey, we've got this conference going on. Can you speak at this thing? And I'd always give these people a a polite rejection. Mm. But I felt like showing them like, look, this isn't personal to you. Like, here's what's going on with me. I'm just head down in my book and I'm doing this program and, that, and that's all I'm doing. So a now page is also a good way of saying like, this is what I'm doing and nothing else. Right. <laughs> so it's a good way of letting people know like, yeah, I'm not really open for uh, suggestions right now, but <laughs> yeah, if you go to now, now, now.com, mm -hmm. that's a place where, um, after the idea caught on, like it was just something I had on my personal site and then somebody saw me do it and he put one on his site. And then when I tweeted his, like the same day, like eight more people did it than the next day, like 20 awesome. people did it. And pretty soon I was getting, you know, like uh, dozens of emails from people saying, hey, cool idea. I put a now page on my site. So I made now, now, now dot com as a place that uh, collects everybody's now pages into one place and anybody who has a now page i put them onto now now now.com that's awesome i love it well i might be sending you a, a now page very soon as well good <laughs> what, what it's if, nerdy but i like it i mean my i tend to i tend to keep everything important on my site you know and i like this idea of like your site as the definitive source of information about you not sending people away to some corporate social media site Sure. Yeah. I love it. What are you, so by, speaking of your now page, what are you currently most excited about right now? Oh, uh, hold on. Let me read my now page. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> what am I excited about right now? Um, the, so I just finished my 
book for musicians that okay. I'm sending out to the printer and doing it very DIY. Okay. It actually kind of reminds me of the indie music spirit that was like kind of like mid late nineties or no, let's say mid nineties when it was like the internet was like first becoming a thing and musicians were first getting this spirit of like, wait a minute, I don't need to sell my soul to the man. I can do this myself. <laughs> yeah. Like I don't need to, you know, record label doesn't need to own my rights. Like there's nothing they can do. I can't do for myself. So I'm kind of realizing that with publishing that my last book was on penguin, like, mm. you know, major publisher and in the stores and everything. Right. And I just saw, like, you know, there's really nothing they're doing for me that I can't do for myself. Mm -hmm. So it feels kind of cool and punk and indie to just do it myself. Like, Absolutely. I think as of now, I might not even sell it on Amazon, just like right on my own site, man. <laughs> like, this is, I got everything I need right here. I want to do it myself and own my own rights. So I'm doing my own translations. I'm hiring my own translators instead of waiting for foreign publishers to contact me. Um I'm doing that in advance and uh, setting up a little storefront to sell it directly from my site. So the book is called Your Music and People, and it's a collection of all my advice for musicians over the years. Nice. Awesome. What, um, I guess, do you have any kind of advice that you would like to share? Maybe like one, one tip from, from the book or maybe a, a preview of what people could <laughs> Well, Well, how about in this whole conversation, <laughs> I think these things will come up. I, I wouldn't okay. say that there's just like one single thing. The book is more like a philosophy okay. of connecting your music with people. Got it. So I think it contrasts with another brilliant book like Ari Herstand's book mm -hmm. called How to Make It in the New Music Business. Yep. Like to me, that is the best book out there right now like Absolutely. every musician should read that book mm -hmm. that really tells you what you should be doing right now mm -hmm. um my book the your music and people book is more like a philosophy okay. a kind of timeless philosophy of uh it, oh the subtitle gives you a hint it's called creative and considerate fame okay i love that <laughs> that's awesome yeah like the, the ari's book um i have a music business one class that i teach and the standard textbook for that class used to be uh, Donald Passman's book, which is still a great of book. Course. Um, but I think Ari's book is like, I don't know, not to be biased or anything, but I think it's like the best book to start off with for musicians. Yeah. It literally teaches you how to do it now versus um, how do I negotiate a record contract that <laughs> I may or may not get in 10 years from now. Right. Like I think that, that Donald Passman book it's from another era. Like to me, I think as a musician, that book is more of a turnoff. Like that, do that book doesn't make me like jump out of my chair and get excited about doing this yeah. thing. It's, it's kind of more of this like, Oh God, this sounds awful. This is scary. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I would actually, I'd put that Donald Passman book on my short list of like, don't read this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like don't, don't read this. Cause it's going to turn you off. Until someday you'll know when you actually need to read this. If you're sitting there about to negotiate some kind of deal with EMI, yeah, then go read that book. But until then, yeah, stick with Ari Herstand's book. Yeah, and then uh, soon, soon your book as well. Have a cool little philosophy to go along with all the <laughs> strategies you're flying. I'm excited. I can't wait. So you were a musician yourself. That was kind of when you first started uh, in your career, your adventures. Uh, you were going to Berkeley College of Music to study to be a musician. You also had a really great mentor i'm blanking on his name right now um, kimo williams kimo williams yes um really awesome musician uh kind of shared a story of how you got started in your 
music uh, career and how you got started getting paid to play music? Well, I started out by saying yes to everything. Mm-hmm. I was like a, a very, very ambitious teenager. <laughs> uh, so I was 18 and I had just moved to Boston to go to Berklee School of Music. Mm-hmm. And the bass player in my band got offered a gig because he knew a booking agent. I didn't. I didn't know anybody. I had no connections. Mm -hmm. But the bassist in my band got offered some random gig to be a roving minstrel at a pig show in Vermont. (laughs) And the gig paid 75 bucks. So he thought that was just like too stupid to waste his time on. So he asked if I wanted the gig. I was like, hell yeah, man, a paying gig. (laughs) So I took it. I said, yeah, absolutely. And it was like a $50 round trip bus ticket to get up to Vermont. But I didn't care. I got the gig. Uh, You know, I went up and showed up at some weird pig show in Vermont with my guitar and walked around singing songs. So, But after the gig, the booking agent called me and said, look, I've got a lot of other gigs. I've got a good report on you in Vermont, and I've got a lot of other gigs, including this touring circus whose musician has just quit. So I took the gig, and I toured with that circus for 10 years, uh, doing over a 1,000 shows, all because of this $75 pig show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that's on the gigging side. That was my first paying gig. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the inside of the industry, that also was an interesting story, that when I was 19 years old, I was still at Berkeley School of Music, and it was like in a music business class. And I bought a pizza for a visiting speaker. He was the vice president of BMI, and he was coming to our class to give a talk. And on his way into class, I heard him mention that he was hungry. Like, he kind of turned to the teacher and said, oh, I I thought we were going to eat first. And the teacher said, oh, no, I I thought you ate already. And he goes, oh, man. (laughs) And so while everybody was still getting seated, I dashed out and called Supreme's Pizza and had them deliver three pizzas to room 313. Oh, wow. And um, so when the pizzas arrived, this vice president of BMI kind of said, all right, dude, (laughs) good move. I owe you a favor. (laughs) So a couple of years later, he totally uh, came through. On his offer, uh, he straight up got me a job at Warner Chapel Music Publishing in the tape room. Um, He heard they were hiring. I had just graduated from college. I was 20 years old. And he heard that they were hiring. So he called them up and he said, I've got your guy. Like, you're done hiring. His name's Derek Sivers. He's your guy. And so I get this call in my dorm room at 7 o'clock at night. Like, hi, this is Julie from Warner Chapel. Um, Mark said we should hire you. So can you start Monday? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, that was it. I was working inside the industry at Warner Chapel Music Publishing and learned a ton about how things work inside. But it was all because I bought pizzas for this random dude. There's there's many ways to to offer value to to people. Yeah. Like you never know what little thing is going to lead to big things. Mm -hmm. And that's why you have to get out there and do everything. Yeah. That's so creative. That's such a cool story. What did you do for Warner Chapel Music? Uh, I was the bottom of the totem pole i was running the tape room it was basically like a minimum wage job but i had this huge library of a room that was just my room with every piece of music we owned and any anything that came in or out of there had to go through me and so i got to see how deals get done um how they don't happen how they do happen um yeah i just got to be like a fly on the wall watching how the inside of the industry works yeah, that's not not I don't mean to sound like a book pitch, but it's like that's actually a lot of what the book is about, that your music and people book is about like the lessons I learned 
from the inside of the industry because I really enjoyed sharing those with other musicians because it felt like I was kind of a spy, you know, mm-hmm. like I'm still really a musician, but here I am inside the industry. Right. So I felt like I was like spying on the industry <laughs> to kind of like tell my fellow musicians how it's done. Learning all the secrets. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. What did you work any other jobs in the industry or was Warner Chapel uh, the only one? No, that was it. Um, yeah. In fact, I, I, uh, quit my job there after two years because I was making more money as a musician than I was for my day job. And, uh, yeah, 1992. I quit my last job in 1992 and became a full-time musician. That's awesome. And was the the full-time musician, was it just the the circus thing? Because you had your own band as well. Um, I don't know too much about the background of the band. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, there's nothing to say about the band. No. Um, okay. But I was just doing the hustle, man. It was like living in New York City, mm-hmm. doing whatever it takes to make a buck as a musician. You know, So part of the way you do that hustle is you just you say yes to everything. You take every gig you can get. Mm -hmm. You know, like somebody said, like, uh, we're looking for a jazz pianist for an art opening. I was like, yep, I'm a jazz pianist. I can do it. (laughs) And they'd say, all right, you know, what does it pay? 300 bucks. All right, I'm a jazz pianist. And I would like go quickly, like practice for two weeks, like sitting there with a real book every night, practicing piano for three hours, even though like I wasn't really a pianist, but hey, I got the gig. That's awesome. (laughs) Um, Somebody says, yeah, we need a metal guitarist for this solo, for this thing. I'm like, yep, I'm a metal guitarist. (laughs) Like, whatever it takes, man. Um, I was like a guitarist in a West African uh, Afro-pop band. I would do a lot of sessions around the city. I'd even get some gigs singing. Like, I sang on some sessions. They're like, you know, we're looking for a singer. I'm like, yep, I'm a singer. (laughs) So it's just like, that's part of just doing the hustle. You just say yes to everything and do whatever it takes. That's awesome. And Instead of working some some side gig while doing music, your your side gig was music. So that's kind of such a cool story. Yeah, I mean, it it really helped to to be in the middle of things like that. Um, I highly recommend it. You know, even if you have to be an intern, uh, and it doesn't even have to be you know like right in Rockefeller Center, New York City. Even just say like finding a local booking agency or a local production company, and just offering to intern with them, just to kind of see what it's like to be on the receiving end of people's music. Mm-hmm. That was the the biggest eye-opener for me, is just understanding what it's like to be on the receiving end of everybody's music. It just, it makes you so much more empathetic, considerate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you understand that these people are bombarded with music and you understand how to set yourself apart from the pack. Yeah, you, you learn, it's such a good lesson because you learn so much by... Just like getting involved in different areas of the industry. So I wasn't a yeah. musician per se, but uh, I was more on the promoter side and uh, managing um, small, like local musicians in, in Orlando. And when I left from working for like a small theater and started working for like Live Nation, the learning curve in the first six months to a year was, was mind blowing, like how much you get exposed to and how much you learn. So even if it's just yeah. a short experiment where you work for a label for a couple months or a year, um, I feel like you learned so much and gained so many new skills that you can add to your, your repertoire and how you approach your career. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So if you were 18 again and pursuing a music career in today's music industry, knowing everything that you know now, but CD Baby already exists, you only have 500 bucks in your bank account, what would be your strategy to pursue a music career over the next five to 10 years? 
Well, first I would do everything in Ari Herstan's book, <laughs> how to make it in the new music business. Nice. I would just do what he says. And that's just like, you know, the first step. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I would split my time between L.A. and New York, even though you say, you know, I've only got 500 bucks. I would do whatever it takes, because when I look back at my career, so many great things happened because I was right there in the game. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like right there in New York City where everything was happening. Mm. And so the people I was meeting, actually, you know what? I've never, ever told this story publicly because I always forget when we're actually in a conversation. But this is a good example. Um, when when I was recording my album, the dude that was like an assistant engineer at the studio where I was recording my album, like the guy that was like wrapping microphone cables – his name was Royston Langston, and he had like this British accent, and he was talking about his friend Sean Lennon. I was like, what the hell? <laughs> and he went on to become the lead singer of the band Space Hog and married Liv Tyler and like, wow. you know, superstar. And that was like the dude that was wrapping my microphone cables. <laughs> and same thing when I got a gig playing guitar for this Japanese pop star that was like one of the best paying high profile gigs in my life. I was like 22 years old playing to, uh, audiences of 10,000 people in Japan. And it was just because my roommate was an assistant engineer at the studio where Ryuichi Sakamoto was recording. So I think it's a huge benefit, like actually still underrated benefit to be in New York or LA or maybe Nashville. Mm-hmm. Um, and ideally, I mean, if you can hack it, you could use, uh, if you got friends with couches, <laughs> do both. You know, if you find some cheap flights, you crash on a couch in L.A. for a few months and meet everybody and crash on a couch in New York for a couple months and meet everybody and go back and forth and take advantage of both networks. But, you know, that's that's stretching it. You were asking my uh, kind of ideal plan. But <laughs> um, at least pick one, like move to L.A. or move to New York. And it, it may suck at first. But the people you're going to meet along the way are the most ambitious ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, so that's something. But uh, I'll keep going. So yeah. knowing what I know now about myself, I would pursue the producer path, not the artist path. Oh, interesting. But that's just about, like, self-awareness. Like, mm-hmm. when I was 18, I was totally pursuing the artist path. I was trying to be the next prince or whatever. <laughs> um but over the years, I found like, man, I, I love being in the studio and being on stage, eh, not so much. So I'd rather be Brian Eno than Bono. Mm-hmm. And instead of Billy, instead of Billie Eilish, I'd rather be her brother Phineas. Right. You know, I want to be the guy in the studio mm-hmm. because to me, that's the most creative stuff. I kind of I, like I read the audiobiography of um, Brian Eno and I read the story of where he's in the studio with the band U2 recording their great album, Achung Baby. And then when the album's done, Brian Eno has a week off, and then he goes back into the studio to work on a new record with a new artist, whereas U2 has to like go tour for like three years mm-hmm. playing those same 15 songs. And I think, no, I'd rather have his career than theirs. Yeah. Um, but that said, I think I would, if I was doing it all again now, I would position myself higher up the food chain like, even with only 500 bucks in my bank account, like you said, <laughs> I would I would just declare myself to be a production company and a label that's helping find, sign, produce, and promote artists. I think it just, it sets a certain expectation and status for yourself. 
um, even if you're broke, to just say, like, no, this is what I'm pursuing. Like, yes, I'm an artist, but this is my production company, and this is my label, and I'm going to, you know, find, sign, produce, promote artists. It just kind of positions yourself higher up the food chain. It also shows that you're not waiting to be a pawn in somebody else's machine, you know? Um, saying that, no, I'm, I'm going to be an equal player, not a little uh, bit member hoping for your table scraps. Uh, and lastly, I think I would deliberately cultivate an image. Uh, it's nice to think that we're in the audio business, mm -hmm. but the visuals matter so much. I think it's better to be on top of it and use it as part of your artistic expression instead of saying it doesn't matter and, and then having it happen anyway, but unintentionally. Mm -hmm. You know, people are going to make first impressions about you, whether you like it or not. Right. So you might as well control them deliberately instead of, uh, you know, just being uh, on the receiving end of the random impressions that you might be giving off unaware. I love it. It's to me, to me, great little like lessons and tips in there. Um, where to start? <laughs> so, so the fact about moving to New York or LA, I mean, that's so true. Um, again, even like speaking from my experience on the, the promoter kind of manager role when I first started, um, there's only so much you can do over email or a phone call, but actually yeah. going there, even if that's something that someone can't afford and um, they make up a bunch of excuses. No, it's just too expensive to move to these places. At least going there a few times a year uh, is yeah. so, so beneficial because it makes yeah. a drastic difference when you go to New York, LA or Nashville and just be surrounded by a community. And sometimes it, it helps also if you're not from there because then you're not always around. And sometimes people will make an effort to make time to, to meet with you. And hopefully uh, that leads to something else. So I love that idea. Um, Actually, I'd say if when you said like if you can't move there and you just go there a couple times a year, mm -hmm. uh, conferences are good for that. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not sure how valid it it still is, but I think so. The um, I think it's called the ASCAP Music Expo. Usually happens in April in LA. Yep. Um, I always found that one to be so great for making connections. Just so many people. When you go to these conferences, you're meeting people who are usually in the game right now, making things happen right now, because that's who ASCAP invites to come speak. Mm -hmm. But then all the other attendees are people who are, by definition, open to meeting new people. That's why they're there at this conference. Whereas if you're just, you know, cold calling from a directory of booking agents, you know, 90% of them might not be open to hearing from anybody right now. They're just booked. They're, you know, they're just, they're not looking for any new clients, right? Mm -hmm. Um but you go to a conference, you're going to meet people that are open to meeting new people. Yeah. So, yeah, going to conferences, I also think, is still kind of underrated. South by Southwest is uh, is still worth going to, even though it's ginormous. It's ginormous. <laughs> um, but, yeah, but, yeah, look for some of these uh, secondary ones, uh, but especially the ones uh, that are in the music centers. Like, there, there might be other little conferences going on in Pennsylvania or Minnesota, but those unfortunately probably aren't worth your time unless you're really wanting to get into that local region. But right. if you go to the ones in LA and New York, you're going to be meeting people that are right there in the game, making things happen right now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You also talked about uh, self-awareness. So like being more self-aware now, you would go the producer route. Um, I guess it's like really tough. So if someone is listening to this, that's, that's younger, um, that kind of hears like this, this message, 
is there a way to train self-awareness? Do you have like any tips on how to work on your self-awareness? Um, I don't even know if that's a great question, oh, yeah. but yeah. No, yeah. no, just, you just go, go try it. <laughs> you know, you can yeah. think, you can think in theory, you would like something. You can be sitting at home thinking that you would like to go tour, but the only way to know is to go try it. Right. You might hate touring. Mm -hmm. um, you might love it for the first year and then hate it after that. Right. Or, yeah, you might hate being in the studio. You might hate, like, you never know. You just, you have to go try these things in practice, mm -hmm. not just think about it in theory. Right. You know? Yeah. And I guess kind of also think about what what is important to you just in life and in general, like overall, like, is it health? Is it family? Is it financial stability? And how do these things affect those other factors that are important to you as well? But see, I think that's something that we also don't really know until we True. try. Like, True. you can say because you think it sounds good or because you heard your parents say it or something. Right. You can say, this is what I value, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. But maybe you don't, you know, the, um, yeah. there was a interesting lesson I learned just a couple of years ago that your actions reveal your values, mm -hmm. not your words. So no matter what you say is important to you or what you say you want, your actions reveal the truth, mm -hmm. right? Like if you say you want to quit drinking, <laughs> but <laughs> You're still drinking? Well, the truth is you don't really want to quit. Right. If you really wanted to quit, you would do it. Mm -hmm. And if you say you really want to start writing a song every week, well, if you're not doing it, well, I guess you don't really want to do it. Right. Because if you really wanted to do it, you would do it. Mm -hmm. Like nothing would stop you if you really wanted it. Mm -hmm. So look at your actions, mm -hmm. not just your words. Your words are actually kind of meaningless. Right. Um, instead, look at what you're actually drawn to. Or, if you're hearing me say this and you feel that your actions and your words are really out of alignment with each other, mm -hmm. well then, damn it, go change your actions yeah. to match with your words. Like, if you say this is important to you, well then, shut up, quit to, listening to <laughs> podcasts and go, go write yeah. your damn song already. That's you know? fantastic. I love that. <laughs> that's, that's such a good tip. Um, that's cool. I'm glad I asked that. Um, so, one, one of the books that you talked about um saying yes to everything when you when you first when you're first starting out and i love that how the things you said yes to were mostly music related because one of the books i share the most with my students um is the 22 immutable laws of branding uh it's by al and laura reese it's a really cool book um just about how how to build like a really good brand and what other brands are doing that um makes them not stand out as much as other brands and one of the laws so i kind of drew out a few of them and added a, a couple of my own and created 10 to 10 laws for musicians and one of them is, ha is having a narrowed focus um so basically focusing on just one thing for for a while because like a lot of my students for example they look up to people like like jay-z and they want to do a hundred and different things and i was like no when jay-z first started he was only a musician that's all he focused on um so, and then, you know, you get caught up listening to people like, like Tim, uh, not Tim Ferriss, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, um, where he says you need to create 200 pieces of content a day, and then you become <laughs> more of a content creator versus a musician and a social media strategist. So I guess the, the zone is in on the Tim Ferriss podcast. He said, um, uh, the lesson that you would give to your 30 year old self is to don't be a donkey. Can you explain what this lesson is and how students or anyone could apply that to their life? The story of the donkey 
is actually an old story from the 1400s by a philosopher named Buridan. Um, and it was a story, like a hypothetical story, of a donkey that is exactly halfway in between a stack of hay and a pail of water. Mm. And he can't decide which way to go. He's like hungry and thirsty. So he looks left and he looks right. And eventually he dies of hunger and thirst because he was halfway in between. He just couldn't decide which to do first. <laughs> mm. So the point is to not get paralyzed by choice. Mm. Just make any choice. Do something, anything, always. Don't do nothing. And so the lesson learned from the donkey tale to me is there is no wrong choice. Like The only wrong choice is to do nothing. Mm -hmm. So just always be doing something towards your career. So as far as like uh, the 22 laws of branding, mm -hmm. I think, yeah, your, your narrow focus is already music. Right. You don't have to narrow your focus down to just be, you know, acoustic finger-style guitar or something. Right. It's not like you're trying to do music and horse training and architecture. Mm -hmm. We're already narrow-focused on music. Right. And then one of your rules you also have is the, the rule of hell yeah or no. Share with the audience what, what that is, what this rule is, and is this something that you should apply even when you're you know, first starting out? Because you mentioned that how you said yes to everything at first. Um, at what point does, does hell yeah or no something that you should apply to your career journey or a project you're working on? Sure. So hell yeah or no is a mindset to use when you're already successful and you're overwhelmed in opportunity. Mm -hmm. So it's just a little rule of thumb that says, like, say yes to less. And if you're feeling anything less than, oh, hell yeah, that would be amazing. Mm -hmm. If you're feeling anything less than that, then just say no. But, yeah, thanks for setting me up for that. You're, <laughs> you're right that it's, it's a strategy to use when you're overwhelmed in opportunity. Okay. But for now, at the beginning of your career... The best thing is to do it all, to say yes to everything, try everything, because like lottery tickets, the more you have, the better. So get into different networks. Uh, go know filmmakers and people in TV production. Uh, get to know the best musicians in your local area. Take trips to L.A., New York, and Nashville and attend these conferences. Keep in touch with everybody you meet. It's one of the best things you can do. Um, at these conferences, the 99% of the people at conferences never do the follow-up, which means they're missing the whole point mm -hmm. because the conference isn't where the real things happen. The conference is just where you make a little connection, but everything happens in the follow-up afterwards. If you don't do the follow-up after the conference with the people you meet, well, then you've just wasted your time. Right. You know, so the whole point of the conference is to just make a little connection you meet somebody, you're making a couple of jokes about burritos and bicycles, and you just have a 10-minute chat. Mm -hmm. You trade contact info, and then you follow up with that person a week later when they're back at their desk. You know, that's when everything happens is a week later, not at the conference. Right. Like The conference is not the place to be trying to shove something into people's hands. It's a place to get people's contact info, and then everything happens in the follow-up afterwards, right? Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, the uh, point is that Within the music business, you never know what might hit. So you got to try it all until something is rewarding you. 
whether it's rewarding you with money or fame or even just rewarding you with uh, more intrinsic creative rewards, you know, like you're just really happy doing something, but then dive deeper into that one thing Mm -hmm. and give it all you've got. But at first, yeah, try everything and do it all. Yeah. And I think that's how opportunities to present themselves by just getting involved in different, I mean, different things as long as they're, I guess, within the same area of focus and, yeah. Just saying yes to everything. Yeah, that's how opportunities uh, happen, uh, for sure. Um, so using your hell yes or no philosophy to avoid being distracted by all the things that musicians, quote unquote, have to do, uh, such as posting on social media, creating 200 pieces of content a day and trying to book shows, trying to write songs. There's so much that that you, quote unquote, have to do, um, assuming that most musicians and creators, hell yes, is creating their art. What are some things that musicians and creators maybe could outsource and have someone else do so they can stay focused on their hell yeah? Ah, okay. So do you remember Moby, the techno artist? I do. Okay, so I will never forget. I was never even a big fan of Moby, but I read this interview with him once Mm -hmm. where the journalist said – Uh, Like, I've known you since your early days, and we both know that there were many amazing artists in your scene. So why did you get so much more successful than they did? And I'll never forget his answer, which is he said, well, while my friends were just pasting up flyers to promote their next gig, I just put that same amount of energy into finding a great team. Mm -hmm. I found a great manager, an agent, a publicist, and a label. And then while my fellow musicians just kept gigging, my career took off because I had a team. And this came up again when I read the biography of the band U2. Uh, after their first hit, uh, they were like touring around America for their first time. They came over from Ireland. And their manager was taking them around America. And they had just had like their first hit on the radio. And they encountered this band in Boston that was like a friend of their manager's. But this gig, I mean, sorry, this band in Boston had just been gigging relentlessly for 10 years, Mm -hmm. like every week for 10 years. And the guitarist of U2 uh, just sadly noticed, he said, wow, he said, having one song on the radio does more for your career than 10 years of gigs. Mm -hmm. Like you can write 100 songs, you can do 1000 gigs, you can have a million followers on social media but it won't get you as far as having someone work the inside of the industry. Mm-hmm. So I think that finding your team is hard, but it's no harder than promoting gigs. Right. And you'll get a much better reward for your effort. Where should people, I guess, start? Um, it kind of takes takes me back a little bit to the, the question I asked you earlier, if you were to start over again. Because um, like just building a team is isn't easy if you go to traditional route. So if you're trying to find a manager, an agent, a label, of course, like in Ari's book, he talks about the new music business team. Um, I guess, where would you start in building that team? Uh, well, that's kind of, it's just kind of a collection of everything we've said so far. So mm-hmm. yeah, like what Ari's book says, but also being at these conferences, mm-hmm. um, being in the major media centers, LA and New York, um, and also having something to show for yourself. So you can't just – there's this thing when you've, like, written your first ten songs, mm-hmm. right? And you think you're ready. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like, the Beatles wrote 
a hundred songs before they got their record deal. And then in the record deal, they said, well, yeah, just throw away those first hundred. Let's write some more. So it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, we never even heard the first hundred songs by the Beatles. And and yes, that was 50 years ago. But um, Mm -hmm. I think it still applies that first, wherever your hometown is, wherever you're from, of course, just like shed your ass off and write your ass off and Mm -hmm. practice and just get as great as you can in obscurity first so that when you start going to these events you've got something to show for yourself and it helps if to you know like we said about the image to just have your shit together so that when people are encountering you for the first time it kind of shows that you're serious you got it going on right but then it really does help though to make your own success first so despite the moby story i think it's probably leaving out that he probably had something going on he he made something happen himself first. Mm-hmm. So this is actually like a chapter in my book of the Your Music and People is about making your own success first before you ask the industry for help. Mm, I like that. So I think the, the balancing act is you got to do something you're on your own first. So you're not just like, hi, I'm somebody mm-hmm. from Tennessee with nothing going on. <laughs> Could you help me? <laughs> yeah. Instead, you got to show that you're going to be successful with or without them. Like you are an unstoppable force. You're determined. You're driven. You've got the work ethic. You've got the talent. People seem to like you. Here's a little bit of proof. Now with your help, I think we can take this to the next level. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of mindset you got to come to uh, the industry people with. Um, but actually, if you're completely unsure, then the, the thing we said earlier about like interning right. at one of these companies, like maybe before you go ask a booking agent for help, go contact a booking agent, just intern with them. Actually, that's when I found my first publicist. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> this is how I found my first publicist. I opened up. I went and like got a bunch of music magazines, like actual paper magazines, like Rolling Stone and Spin and whatever. And they have that thing called the masthead on like page two in the fine print where it says like Rolling Stone magazine, you know, 590 Avenue of the Americas, phone number 212-595-3000, whatever it is. And you can like if you call that phone number, reception picks up and says Rolling Stone. (laughs) And so I I just thought like, right. So I just thought like, hmm, okay how would I get into talking to somebody in the editorial department at Rolling Stone? I thought, well, I'll just call the main number and act like I do this all the time. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm not going to be a stammering musician. I'm just going to be like an impatient fellow (laughs) music industry person. So I did it. I called up all these magazines and be like, Rolling Stone and say, editorial, please. (laughs) She just patch me through. And like somebody would pick up and go, editorial. Yeah. I'm like, all right, so now true. I'm on the phone with the dude that di- get, decides who gets on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. So I did this little uh, pitch to every one of these uh, people that I got in touch with saying, uh, saying I would just say, hey, I'm calling from a label. Um, I'm not going to tell you which one because I don't want you to think I'm promoting myself, but we're just looking to hire a new publicist. <laughs> so who would you recommend? And they'd say, oh, hmm, uh, you should talk to Michelle from Space Baby. She's good. And uh yeah, I talked to Laura Flanagan. She's all right. She's actually, yeah, so I'd say Laura Flanagan's one of the best out there right now. And I'd say, okay, cool. Thank you. 
Mm. And that was it. Just like a one minute phone call, not mm. wasting their time. And then I'd go find, you know, Michelle from Space Baby and Laura Flanagan or whatever they recommended. And then when I was calling the publicist, I'd say, hey, um, Jeffrey from Rolling Stone said I should call you. No, <laughs> she was like, oh. <laughs> and so, yeah, like just, you know, if you're ambitious, you you make it happen. You right. don't sit at home and complain. You go find a way to make it work. Yeah, I love that. It's <laughs> so cool. Um, you you write and you read a lot as well. Um, and you, you're about to finish the, the book, Your Music and People. You're working on another book right now. What does your typical writing day look like? Like, how do you write? Where do you write? Do you take breaks? Um, use any, mm, any kind of strategies to be a more productive writer? Um. I don't know if this is going to be useful to you <laughs> listeners, but um, I, I learned a new word this year. I mm-hmm. found out that I am monomaniacal. <laughs> <laughs> I get really, really into one thing at a time, mm-hmm. and I just do it to completion, whether that takes hours or weeks or months. Um, so I will just work on something all day long until midnight. <laughs> then I fall asleep. I sleep for only like five hours a night. Then I wake up at 5 a.m. and I jump back into it. I just get obsessed <laughs> with one thing at a time. Um, this is just my nature. I've always been like this. I don't know why I seem unable to sleep more than five hours a night. Mm-hmm. I'm just a morning person. I just wake up full of energy. So um, I do find it helps for what it's worth. Um, if you're looking for tips that I keep my phone completely off. I mean, you know, I hold in the power button for three seconds until it powers down. Mm -hmm. And then I usually go over to my broadband uh, modem and I just unplug it so that I'm completely disconnected from the Internet. Mm -hmm. So that when I'm working, I can't even go online in a moment of distraction. You know, I sometimes just out of, you know, when you're sitting there working on something difficult, you don't know what to do next. You think, oh, you pick up your phone. I pick up my phone and it's off i'm like oh yeah right okay (laughs) time to get back to work um but i'm also a dad now so when i'm on daddy duty i kind of do the same thing like i just shut down everything i shut off my computer i shut off my phone and i just give him my full attention uh so when he goes back to mom i go back to work and that's kind of my weekly break like if you're asking like my um like do i take breaks being with my kid is my break so it's like that's my time where I just shut down all my ambition and I'm just present there for him. But my advice to others is to always do whatever is interesting you the most at this moment. So I think of that as like, use the fuel tank that's connected right now, (laughs) (laughs) whatever that may be. You may be suddenly like nerding out uh, about sound patches or nerding out about, you know, routing your effects through something or other like whatever it is that's interesting you right now just go for it even if it keeps you up all night and then when you find yourself distracted to procrastinate um instead of surfing the web and going on picking up your phone and swiping and swiping and swiping instead of doing this kind of stuff just keep the internet off stand up for a minute go get a glass of water go pee and then just dive back into it like whether you feel like it or not. So this has also been my biggest change this year. It's like right now, yeah, I'm working on my next book, which is really, it's rewarding, but it can get really difficult. Like I'm sitting there writing, you know how it is like when you're songwriting, like, you're like, how do I like communicate this thing in five syllables? I've already got the melody. I I just, I'm trying to put this meaning. I got five syllables to say it in and you get frustrated 
And in that moment of frustration, you pick up your phone and you want to distract yourself to just kind of relieve the pressure. But I just find like, no, 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 that stuff is going to suck you in. So instead, I'll just like get up, get a glass of water or pour a cup of tea, whatever it may be. And then I just get back into it, like whether I actually feel like it or not. And I think of the metaphor uh, that I've heard from somewhere that says that inspiration, like any worthy romantic interest, will never make the first move. But if you go towards her, she'll come meet you halfway. So I I think of that metaphor a lot where it's like, "Ah, I don't know what to do. I'm just not inspired right now. It's like, oh, right. (laughs) Inspiration never makes the first move. You just sit down and start working anyway, even though you're not inspired. And just a few minutes into it, you just start working anyway. A few minutes into it, inspiration will come meet you halfway. Yeah, it's it's so true with picking your phone up. Like I love the idea of just, and I've, I've been doing getting better and better with this as well. Just turning your phone off or the internet off because I just recently got an iPhone, and one of the features on it it tells you how much time you spend on your phone and how many times you pick up your phone, and it's scary when <laughs> looking at those. Right. Things. So I try to make yeah. a conscious effort to uh, reduce that amount of time and be be more present in in life and whatever you're working on. Because the more present you are, the maybe the quicker you'll find inspiration yeah it helps to break it into different modes right like for the most part i think that what i need is not out there it's in here like most of my aspirations in life are like self achievement uh, category right like Mm -hmm. they're things that i need to be more of and i need to do better um I know it's tempting to feel like what you need is out there, but usually I think for most of us, what you need is right there already, like in your head and in your fingers. And it's just a matter of mastering distraction and whoever's going to work the hardest and work the smartest and uh, master distraction instead of having distraction master you, um, that person's going to win. But then, of course, there are other times, like we were saying earlier, where it's like, yeah, go to L.A., go to New York, go meet everybody, mm-hmm. stay in touch with everybody. Like, that's just a different mode. Like, just give that a different time of your day. I'd say it's actually prioritize creation over that stuff mm-hmm. so that maybe even, like, keep your Internet off until you've gotten in, like, two or three good hours of writing, recording, whatever it may be. And once you've filled your quota where you're proud of yourself – then let yourself turn on your phone, turn on your internet, um, and go put aside like a you know a dedicated hour of deliberate networking and follow up and all that kind of stuff. So you kind of just section it off in your day, so that you can you can proudly, or maybe with uh, with a good peace of mind, you can shut that all off again mm-hmm. and turn inward again back to your own creation. Yeah, I like that. That's that's so great. Um, so I have these, these core pillars that I've created, you know, for, for a classroom setting, you try to, um, create like these, these steps or these pillars or, um, different philosophies for, for the students, just kind of create like a classroom, I guess, teaching setting for the real world. Um, so mm-hmm. I created these four pillars and one of them for core pillars for musicians to always be working on your craft. And, you know, you talked about, um, 
being ready when you go to these conferences and when you go meet people writing a hundred songs first. And there's, I've heard that so many times with musicians saying that over and over again, that your, your first hundred songs are, um, I mean, maybe they're not crap, but <laughs> they've really <laughs> said your first hundred songs are crap. Throw those away and then, mm-hmm. and then start over. Um, so you should always be working on your craft. And in one of your recent articles, uh, experiments in music and life, uh, which I'll include in the show notes, you talk about two different approaches that people generally take um, when it comes to writing. And I assume I assume that a lot of songwriters use these approaches as well, um, which is either you're too free or you're too restricted. So instead of instead you create your own rules and apply that to a piece of music or your writing or even in life. Uh, what are some of your experiments that you have used? Um, yeah, I don't know if this is useful to anybody, but um, <laughs> I would like for example. I, so we're talking music now. So um, I would nick. Uh, ingredients from someone's song and then mix it with an ingredient from a different song and then do that with three or four ingredients, like a very deliberate mix and match. So um, I would take like the structure of a specific, say like Elvis Costello melody. Like there's this melody I really liked and I'd say like, I like, like I want to write something like that melody. So I would sit down and like, I would basically kind of imitate that melody. Not exactly, but you know, an homage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but then I would have this other song I liked. It's like Fela Kuti, this West African musician. He was like the James Brown of Nigeria. And I liked his arrangements, especially this one song called O-D-O-O. And I just loved the way that it would build up. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to use the arrangement of this Fela Kuti song. But then I would decide to do it with different instruments. Like I really like Indian instruments, especially the tambura with the drone. So I would use Indian instruments with a Fela Kuti arrangement to, and with this Elvis Castello melody on top. And then I'd just start layering all kinds of instruments in there. But then, say, uh, I remember reading an interview once where the uh, song by Prince called Kiss, mm-hmm. I read that he actually had a really full arrangement of that song, like filled with tons of layers of instruments. But if you listen to the song, like the, the hit version we all know, um, it's just like two instruments in there. It's like no bass or anything. It's just nothing but drums mm-hmm. and this one little guitar part, and that's it, like drums and guitar. So I found that that was later in the mix, like after he had all these instruments, then he would just like solo two instruments in the voice and try it out. And he went, oh, okay, I like this better. And then maybe just in the outro, he would bring in the other instruments. So I would do something like that. So it's like take a production for, trick from here, an arrangement from here, instrumentation from there, a melody from here, and mix it all together. And then, to me, I knew all the sources of my experiment. But to someone listening, it would sound really unique. Mm-hmm. You know, So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, where it's like if you're feeling creatively stuck, you give yourself these little challenges. Or sometimes they might be physical challenges. Like you say, like, okay, I'm going to write a piece using only my left hand. <laughs> um, it's just, to me, having giving yourself these little restrictions, these little games uh, is way more inspiring than just saying like, okay, what am I going to write a song about today? What What is one of your favorite recent experience? Cause like in the article, you also talked about taking that concept and like just applying it to, to your life. Um, do you have any favorite recent experience that you've applied to your life or maybe someone that was inspired by, by the article that Dave applied to, to theirs? Um, oh God, I'm, I'm always, experimenting i think like almost every day of my life is kind of in the phase of some experiment or another 
like I'll just say no to everything for a while Mm -hmm. and then I'll say yes to everything for a while (laughs) and then I'll try outsourcing everything and just hire people to do everything for a while. But then I'll just try doing everything myself for a while. Um, So let's see, like recently, um, like for a while I was traveling every week, whether I felt like it or not. Mm-hmm. in the name of widening my horizons because i've never lived in europe before and i'm living in europe right now so i'm like all right well whether i feel like it or not i'm gonna hop on a plane every week to somewhere <laughs> that i've never been mm-hmm. and learn something about it and i would walk around and i'd meet up with people and i'd read a book about it and take a guided tour and then um like so i did that for a few months and then one day i decided to do the opposite for a few months where i decided to deliberately not scratch my travel itch so I stayed home and hardly left the house for months, and I would just work on my book like 18 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And I'd feel real stir-crazy, but that experiment went, was to deliberately do nothing about it. i just keep writing. Where like Almost every day I'd be like, ah, I got to get out of here. I got to go somewhere. I got to do something. <laughs> but then, like I say, I would like stand up. I'm like, eh, or just keep working. <laughs> like, right. I'd like stand up and go stretch my back, get a tea, get a coke or something like that. Sit down, like okay, well, I've had a nice little scream about that. Time to get back to work, and I just do that until I fell asleep at midnight every day. Um, so yeah, I think I'm always in the phase of some. I think of them all as experiments. You know, it's like nothing's the right answer. Mm-hmm. There's no right or wrong. It's all just you try this, you try that. Yeah. And I feel like you learn a lot about about yourself and just life by doing these different experiments. One one of the things yep. that I feel, or that, that a lot of musicians um, that I talk to tend to struggle with, is like trying to like write their story because you know it's all about mm. having a cool story um, to get to lead people to your music. And some of them are just, I guess, maybe have a more normal life, whatever you would define normal as. Um, mm-hmm. Like they're not the person that grew up and couldn't hear and all of a sudden they have this pitch perfect voice. Like, like these, <laughs> right. these stories you hear on American Idol or all these TV shows. Right. Um, so I feel like doing these experiments, I don't know, because like just you mentioning some, some of the things that you experiment with, like in my mind, like I have a lot of questions now, like where did you travel to? What was your favorite place that you traveled to? So I feel like right. doing these experiments is kind of a exciting and fun, unique way to kind of just build your own story and create a story. Just going up and doing something versus just sitting there. Also, I think it helps to remember that the side of yourself you share with the world doesn't have to be your complete reality. You know, like we hear about authenticity, but I think in a perfect world, I think everybody should have a stage name. (laughs) <laughs> or maybe we'll just call it your internet name, you know, that, um, no, we'll just call stage name. Mm-hmm. It would be your public persona as separated from your real self. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, you know what, if, if you want to turn your listeners onto a cool book that I think applies to musicians yeah. in a weird way, uh, I think it's called the alter ego effect. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go to my website, uh, if you go to sivers.org slash book, that's where I put all of my book notes and book reviews. It should be near the top. I sort them with my top recommended books up top. So yeah. look for one called The Alter Ego Effect or something like that. Um, it, it's the author found that across all industries, whether it's like you know football players or investment bankers, a lot of people create this kind of alter ego. You know, and he tells a story about this uh, sports star that 
before he goes out onto the field, he's just like, you know, his, his name's not Lawrence anymore. Now it's like, okay, here comes the tiger. <laughs> Tiger's ready to go out on the field or whatever it may be. You know, here comes a flaming dragon. And it's like, this is his alter ego. You know, he's like, when I go out onto the field, I'm not Terrence. I'm the flaming dragon. <laughs> and and I think that all of us, it's like um, having a stage name helps in so many ways because – you're you're not under the misconception that you need to be your completely honest self. You understand, like, yeah, I, this is my persona, which I'm putting on to entertain you. You know, like, mm-hmm. let's use Bono again, since I said his name earlier. Like, Bono's real name is Paul Hewson. So when somebody's talking about Bono, if somebody says, oh, Bono's a jerk or Bono's full of himself mm-hmm. – you know, the real guy, Paul, can just kind of smile. Like, mm-hmm, yep, Bono's <laughs> full of himself. It's like, yeah, that's a personality he created. It's a persona. So whether somebody's attacking you or even praising you, you don't take any of it too personally because you know it's not the real you. Right. It's it's a persona you're creating for the public's entertainment, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if I had to do it all over again, you, you know, there we go. I forgot to put that on the list. You asked, like, what I would do at 18. Mm-hmm. I would have chosen a different name for myself. Yeah. Um, it's too late now, but, um, uh, yeah, I would have, it doesn't even have to be radical. It doesn't even have to be some silly, stupid name. You could just kind of alter your name just a little bit. Like even, I just found out that just yesterday, random factoid that, um, even people you wouldn't think had a fake name, like Rodney Dangerfield, like Mm -hmm. that comedian, like that wasn't his real name. He totally like nicked that from like a cowboy star or something. (laughs) Right. Um, Gene Wilder, like that wasn't his real name, the actor. Um, I forget. There were like all these, it doesn't even have to be some crazy extreme, you know, flaming tiger kind of name. Uh, but just having a different name, I think, um, helps you understand that what you put out into the world doesn't have to be an accurate portrayal of your real ordinary life. Mm-hmm. This this brings so many thoughts to my mind. Uh, I love that because I always that's one of the things I always um, teach as well. If you uh, are struggling with creating like your story, like what's your backstory, you could just create a persona and yeah. build a story around that persona. And I think I th- that book. Uh, I'll definitely include a link to, in the show notes for to, to that book review. Um, I believe I heard that the author in a podcast with Rich Roll, um, and he was talking about how. You could um, apply this alter ego effect to to anything. It doesn't just have to be like your music career. It could be in your your work life. Um, yeah. You know, whenever you go to work, this alter ego is even though you're an int- maybe an introvert, this alter ego is confident and is liked by people, and he's extroverted and he makes people laugh. Um, totally. So I love that. That's what I would do at conferences. Is it like naturally? You know, I'm talking to you just fine right now. It's like naturally, I'm I'm a real introvert. I'm not shy, but I just I don't like crowds, you know, I'm not like my, my tolerance for talking to other people lasts about an hour or two that I'm done. (laughs) Um, So when I would attend conferences, yeah, I would just like, you know, I'd be like up in my room reading a book and I'm like, okay, time to go down to the exhibit hall. And I would just go like into the middle of everything in the lobby or be where all the people are for like 90 exhausting minutes. And I would just (laughs) turn on my expert self, sometimes just using techniques that I had learned from books. Like I would actually read books on how to talk to people mm. and 
learn techniques about like asking people questions. Listen, listen for places in the conversation where you could ask for ask somebody a question to. Uh, and I just I'd use these specific techniques I'd learned in order to make a conversation with people. It would be exhausting, but I would do it, and everybody would think like, "Oh, what a cool person!" And I would like <laughs> go back up to my room ninety minutes later, exhausted, and yeah. regroup, and Just come back and do plan. it again. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. You can uh, fake it till you make it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like the Kurt Vonnegut version that says, "You are whatever you pretend to be." So speaking like different, creating different experiments, um, I always like look at life in, in seasons. Um, so maybe an experiment could be a season. Uh, if someone's stuck in a current season of their life, whether it's a job or relationship, an inner struggle, um, you know, cause sometimes what something someone might be struggling with is their excuse to not really pursue what they're, they're passionate about and what they, what they want to be. Are there any experiments maybe one could apply to their life to take a step in a more positive direction or like move into a season of getting unstuck? I think when in doubt, just change something, change anything there are really almost no wrong choices that everything is an experiment that you need to try to know. Mm -hmm. Like when you asked me earlier about self-knowledge, you know, it's like you don't really know until you try. Um, so I think the best thing to do. Okay. So yeah, let's, let's say one approach is just, okay, change anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Go just do the opposite of whatever you're doing now, whatever you used to say yes to say no to mm -hmm. whatever you used to say no to say yes to. Um, that's one way just to shake things up. And I've done that in my life too. Like actually, honestly, when I, when I sold CD baby, um, I was feeling really stuck. So I just, that's what I did. I just did the opposite mm -hmm. of whatever I used to do. Um, and it worked well. Suddenly I was just like, I mean, from the outside looked kind of berserk. I was just like going everywhere, doing everything, acting a little insane. But I think I just needed to do that in order to kind of reset myself. Uh, what do you call it? Self-definition. But I think so that's one approach. But I think the better approach, the best approach is to read a couple good books of wisdom and you'll know whatever it is for you. Like, you know, you look at some of these top recommended books, these, these books that thousands of people recommend it's, it's for a good reason. Mm -hmm. And if you read one of these books of wisdom, something will hit you as the right thing for you to do now. And then the thing to do is to just make a point of doing it, no matter how hard or unnatural it seems. Mm -hmm. uh, the important point is that, real change will feel like it's not you. Like you'll be acting like someone else. So it will feel weird if you're doing it right. Mm -hmm. So act like the person that you want to become. I like that. It, it will feel weird when you're doing it right. <laughs> I like that yeah. a lot. My, my big influence is when it comes to, to podcasting and I still have, thousands of hours to, to practice and get anywhere close to where I want to be as a podcaster. But uh, obviously Tim Ferriss and, and Joe Rogan are people I listen to a lot. So it's kind of like my somewhat Tim Ferriss type question that I feel like he would ask. But um, just like being curious about your, your note-taking style because you read a lot of books and you share notes. Well, actually, wait, sorry. Yeah. Um, before we get on to changing the subject to book notes, like you actually just brought up a really good point mm -hmm. is that you can go imitate your role model mm -hmm. 
And honestly, nobody will really know you're doing it because we're all imperfect mirrors. You know, we're all warped. Mm -hmm. So even if you were trying to deliberately mirror someone, like imitate someone, Mm -hmm. uh, you're not going to do it perfectly. You're going to reveal your own twisted self (laughs) through your imitation. So go ahead and imitate. Um, There was, uh, like I told you at the beginning that I uh, got this gig, like I played the pig show and then I got hired to do the circus. Mm -hmm. So for 10 years of the circus, like starting from age 18, I was the ringleader MC of a circus in New England. Mm -hmm. And I was extremely uncomfortable at first. I was like a stammering 18 year old, you know, I'd like get up there and like, uh, Hey everybody. Um, (laughs) welcome to the circus. Um, I hope you enjoy the show. And, um, well, yeah, we've got some, uh, well, uh, yeah, you'll see. Okay. Well, yeah. Welcome to the circus. <laughs> you know. And I'd go backstage and my boss would be like, no, no, come on. You've got to be dynamic. You've yeah. got to be exciting. Like these kids are here for a circus show. This might be the only one they see this year. Come on, go out there and be exciting. And so, God, it took me weeks, dude. Like even like the next week I went out there, I was just like, uh, Hey everybody! Welcome to the circus. You know, yeah. Like I still, I still wasn't doing it because I was still acting like me. And then I'd go backstage, and again they would say, "No more!" Like, come on, <laughs> be exciting. And so one time, just totally passive aggressively, or maybe aggressive aggressively, <laughs> I went out on stage, and I was just like, oh, "Motherfuckers, I'll show them!" <laughs> and I got on the mic, and I just acted like a carnival barker, like (laughs) just totally imitated one of those ridiculous over the top carnival barkers. And I was like, I grabbed the mic and I was just like, ladies and gentlemen, what you're about to see is one of the most amazing things. We are going to have elephants dropping out of the sky. We're going to have snakes coming out of the ground. We are going to have clowns that are going to explode in your face. (laughs) And it's all beginning right now. Here comes the mime circus. (laughs) (laughs) And I went backstage like, you know, there, is that what you want? <laughs> and they were like, yes, finally, you did it. And I was like, wait, really? You actually want me to do that? And they're like, yes, that's what we've been asking you to do. I was like, oh, huh, okay, well, I guess I can do that again. And yeah, that became my circus MC persona. It was like, no, I wasn't being myself. You don't have to be yourself. Like, mm-hmm. You go up there and you can imitate whoever you need to imitate to be entertaining. I love that. <laughs> That's such a great story. Um, it kind of combines the whole persona thing and then just right. creating a persona to, to imitate someone to find your, your own voice in that. Yeah. I love that. Um, and yeah, which, you know, don't let that phrase your own voice distract you. Like this doesn't have to be your accurate real self, you know? Right. Chris, who's sitting there watching TV, this doesn't have to like, <laughs> represent you, you know. Like, I, I guess what I mean just, by my own voice is like one, one thing I always hear. Like, there's, know, there's so many songs um, about a, certain topics. Like, there's so many songs about love, so many songs about heartbreak, and it's like, do I write another song about the same topic? And it's like, yes, because it's going to be like your interpretation or your imitation, or right. your Persona of of that. Um, so that's kind of what I meant by by finding your own voice. It's like your. Nice your interpretation of uh what you're imitating <laughs> yeah which is probably gonna be completely mm. different so, so to the book thing um so I'm, i read a lot of books too and i 
am experimenting with with different styles of note taking. Um, like I highlight quotes and then I create these tables of contents of uh, my favorite quotes in the book or favorite lessons or if they talk about experiments. I guess what is your note taking style like? Because I know you you share a lot of your notes on on your website. Um, like how do you determine something is worth worth revisiting or remembering or even adding to to your site of notes? Um. Sorry, I don't really have anything interesting to say about this. <laughs> I just I just underline what's surprising to me. Okay. Like I'm I'm not I never try to summarize the book. All I'm doing when I'm reading a book, I don't really actually care about the book. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to glean little tiny ideas from it that seem worth saving. So if I'm reading through a book and it all just feels like yeah, 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 then I'm then I don't underline anything. But then if I read something that I go, "Ooh, that's huh." That's interesting. Then I'll underline that, like whatever surprises me. But then I just, it's usually the things that make me raise an eyebrow and make me want to think about them more later. Mm-hmm. Like, huh, like that idea kind of surprises me. I want to reflect on that more later. Mm-hmm. So then I'll underline that and I'll save it in a text file. Um, if it's on the Kindle, you can just do that through, like you connect the USB and then there's a file on there called my clippings and you can copy that over. And then, uh, I usually end up paraphrasing it. If I'm reading a paper book, then I just do it with a pen and then I just retype my underlined things into a text file, but I tend to paraphrase them. I'm not like trying to go for the exact wording. I'm just trying to capture the idea. Um, point is I really do this all just for myself. Like, these are ideas I want to remember so I don't have to read this whole damn book again. (laughs) Like, these are just the 15 sentences from this book that I really liked. Um, But after doing that just privately for a few years, I just realized, like, huh, you know, it would take no effort to just put these on my site. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, if you go to sivers.org slash book, there are, I think, almost 300 books there now because I've been doing this since 2007. Every single nonfiction book I read, I take these detailed notes and I put them on my site. So um, it's all there for the taking. And at first I was worried that authors and publishers would uh, get upset, but actually because I'm linking to their page on Amazon and I'm kind of hyping the book in a way um, so far, everyone has thanked me and people have emailed asking how they can get on there. And I just say, sorry, I don't, I don't do that. I just read books for my own use. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Um, No, it's interesting. Seeing that kind of maybe inspired me of maybe, uh, not, not necessarily doing the same thing of sharing like my notes from books, but um, like when I kind of prepare for a podcast, like, I listen to other podcasts and write down way too many notes. Uh, <laughs> maybe it'll be interesting to share the notes that I uh, glean out of different uh, podcast episodes or interviews yeah. that I uh, listen to for, for guests in preparation. of. You, you've also said that books are your, your mentors. Um, like who are your current mentors or like consistent mentors? Is it mainly, is it mainly books or do you have uh, people that are your mentors that you talk to on a regular basis? Do you have mentors maybe for like different areas of life? Like what's your kind of approach to, to mentors? Ah, okay. I have a lot of thoughts on this okay. because I get asked about this a lot. So here's what I do. Um, I have three mentors Right now. So whenever I'm stuck on a problem mm-hmm. and I need their help, what I do is I take the time, like I write a really good description of my dilemma before reaching out to them. I, so I summarize like the whole context. I think, I think, okay, what is my real problem here? Like, what am I really stuck on? Let me write it down. Give me the, I'll get the context. Let me write down the problem. Let me write down my current options 
that I'm feeling like, okay, these are my four options, and then my thoughts on each one. But then I try to make it as succinct as possible so I don't waste their time, right? Like, I, I don't want to email somebody like a, you know, 20-page email. So I make it succinct. But then before I send it to my mentors, I stop and I try to predict. Like, I look at it again. I try to predict what they'll say. And so then I'll go back and I'll update what I wrote to address these obvious points in advance. It's like, well, if this is what she's probably going to say first, let me just address that now to save us some back and forth time. I try to, again, to predict what they'll say based on that now that I've added this new information and then based on what they've said on the past. And sometimes I'll think of like this person's – because, yeah, a lot of my mentors are authors or people that are, you know, are very public and share their thoughts publicly. So I'll think back about their past interviews or their past books, and I'll think, like, have they covered this point before? Mm-hmm. So after this whole process is done, every time I realize that I don't actually need to bother them because the answer is now clear. Right. So if anything, I just email to, like, thank them for their continued inspiration. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, I have hardly talked with my mentors in years, and I don't think any of them know they're my mentors, and I know for sure that one of them doesn't even know I exist. <laughs> so those are my mentors. I love that. That's kind of how I listen to a ton of podcasts. That's kind of how I look at, um, I guess, with podcasters, like the ones, like I have like different mentors for different areas of life. So like when it comes to health, I listen to, to Ben Greenfield, for example, or right. Um, like for different, I guess, categories that I want to try to improve on. And uh, it's kind of a cool, cool concept. It's kind of just thinking how would they think and then actually reaching out and maybe thanking them, even though they may not know you, you exist. Um, yep. I <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I'll be transparent. One of them, obviously, if uh, if you know me and you know my first publisher or whatever, uh, Seth Godin, mm-hmm. uh, over and over again, I get stuck on some dilemma. I go through that process I'm describing. I'm like, okay, Seth is a busy guy. I don't want to waste his time. How do I summarize my situation? Mm -hmm. Because I know that Seth will reply to me, but I don't want to waste his time. And I'll go through all that. But then I'll think, you know, Seth has shared a lot of his thoughts publicly. Like, he's probably covered this. So I'll go, like, reread a lot of his past posts or reread a a book. You know, I'll reread The Dip or something like that. And then afterwards, I'm like, yeah, okay, I I don't need to bother Seth. I know what he would say. (laughs) And I'll just send him a little email just like, thanks, Seth, you rule. That that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, Just like from the interviews I've heard with you and and interviews I've heard from from Seth and just the explanation you gave on how you try to to think about what that person would think. I feel like that's kind of how Seth Godin would go about things too. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, so, so you mentioned you're a parent, and I'm about to be a parent. So yeah. Any minute now. Any minute now. <laughs> so, maybe by the time this podcast comes out, I'll definitely <laughs> be a parent. Um, and for my son, I want to like so. I guess add a little bit of context. I get this great random advice um, like recently because I'm just asking, telling everyone, and um, kind of just asking if they have any like fun tips uh and i'm not going to mention his name even though it's like a, a positive comment but i don't know if he wants to be mentioned but a comedian from a show i worked recently uh just as something as little as like um bringing like chocolates to the hospital that like they don't sell at the hospital like just something unique and different or magazines and giving that to the nurses um because no one thinks of the nurses at the hospital mm. so like just something as little as that um was like wow that's like such a good idea so in our 
go bag <laughs> that we have ready to go to the hospital, um, we, we threw in some some chocolates. So I guess with, with, with that in mind, um, for for my son, I really want to create an environment for for creativity and inspiration. I want to support him to be you know the best ability I can and empower him to be a good person and a kind person. Of course, that's completely out of my control, but I want to create like an environment where he can really pursue like any career that brings him total joy and fulfillment. And I would assume like a lot of people listening um, that are parents or about to be parents would want similar things. Um, and I always have this joke that I don't care if he wants to be a dinosaur hunter, um, even though I, I think I know dinosaurs don't exist. Maybe they do somewhere. <laughs> uh, I will do whatever it takes in my power to like, you know, help provide those resources to help him find a dinosaur and make a living being a dinosaur hunter and pray that there is actually a career for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so from all the books that you've read and everything that you've learned throughout your journey, you've created these really cool um, and fun, like amazing directives uh, for life, uh, such as how to be useful to others. Um, and I think, I think you said there's 18 different ones that you have. I guess what advice would you give to a new parent that wants to be, to build like a creative environment for, for their child and raise a good human being? Mm. Um, only a couple things come to mind. So my kid is only eight, so I don't feel like um, like I'm a real authority yet. You know, <laughs> ask me in twenty years, and I might have a compendium of advice. But for now, for year one, absolutely find the book called "Brain Rules for Baby" by John Medina. Okay, I read a few different books, and that was that was the one that really stuck with me. And that's a lot of it is about like right now, like the, the first year of life. Hmm. So find brain rules for baby by John Medina, okay. but starting for like year two and plus the, the probably the single best book I've read is called playful parenting by Lawrence Cohen. It was really surprised. It was one of those ones that didn't have a ton of reviews, but it sounded kind of interesting. So I got it. And I love that he points out that children communicate through play. Um, play is just how they communicate everything. Mm-hmm. Like that's how you're going to get honesty out of a kid or and or into a kid is like through play. Um, so yes, read Playful Parenting by Lawrence Cohen. Those are my only two books to recommend. Um, Alison Gopnik wrote something about like the uh, something about the gardener the um, I don't know. That was like a. You'll find that in my book list again. If you go to service.org slash book, it's like something, The Carpenter and the Gardener or something like that by Alison Gopnik. That was also a good one that was a little more kind of ambiguous and philosophical, but I found, um, changed my mind about it. So, but mostly, my number one advi- advice is to just practice shutting off your life and fully enter his world. Mm-hmm. Like, no phone, no clocks, no screens. Um, I think that the single best parenting thing I've done so far is that. It's like when we play, whenever I'm with him, we are in his world. Because like a kid's world is very different than an adult's world, right? There's no time and clocks and hours and minutes. And, <laughs> and um, so you just enter his world and you just let him lead and you follow I think getting out into nature is the other best thing. I spend so much time with my kid and every now and then somebody seems like a Cause we, we spend about on average about 30 hours a week, just one-on-one, just me and him just playing. Um, and somebody expressed 
amazement at that, saying that they would be so bored doing that with their oh, kid. Man. And I realized that they were assuming like we were like sitting in the living room for 30 hours a week. I was like, oh, no. And like whenever I'm with him, we're out <laughs> We because he mostly grew up in New Zealand. Like we just moved to England this year, last year. But um, he mostly grew up in New Zealand. So we were just out in nature for, you know, 20 hours a week just playing with the sticks, the leaves, the dirt, the sand, the rocks, the shells. And it was amazing to raise a kid like it like that in nature and have these things be his playthings. like he he wasn't playing on any screens or devices or any of that like he was like building things out of sticks and putting leaves as the roof and then you know making boats out of leaves on a little river and like this is how he grew up and it's really cool to see now that he's eight mm -hmm his friends are just like little device addicts <laughs> and he's always the one being like, come on, let's go make something. And, yeah. you know, and they're just like, what make something. And I'm like, yeah, I did it right. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's the one thing I've done right so far. And, uh, I would highly recommend that get outside. Uh, yeah. And especially shutting off your life. I found that like the parents that I know that seem to have the hardest time are the ones that are the most, exasperated and talking about how hard it is to be a parent they're usually the ones that are trying to make a kid fit into their adult life mm -hmm. you know this whole like come on we need to go it's nine o'clock i said get ready i said get ready you know right. and they get so frustrated they're like it's because they're trying to make their kid fit into the adult world i think like no like you chose to have a kid yeah. like it's you have to enter their world so yeah, whenever we're together, it's like, no, he's, his fantasy world, his sense of time and all that, like, he leads the way. I just shut off, shut off the devices, shut off the clock, shut off the phone, and we just enter his world. I love that. <laughs> Thanks for that. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, when, when you say, like, people that are, I guess, not entering their, their kid's world, and they're always stressed out or uh, trying to make the child fit in their world, like, I have so many... I hear so many stories when I'm telling people that we're about to have a baby. They're like, oh, my God, be ready to not sleep. And the terrible twos and the terrible threes. And like all this yeah. sounds daunting no. and negative. I'm like, I, I don't want to hear that. Like, I'm excited. And I can't wait to, to play and go out and be in nature and do fun things. And you know, there's there's so much to do in, in Orlando and Florida just in general. And yeah, it's going to be exciting to see the experience that through through his eyes. And kind of follow. Hey. I think it may seem tough when it's other people's kids. Like to me, I think just like having a kid is just, it's just being in love, you know? So it's like, you know, if you're like having to spend 30 hours a week with someone you love, you know, or like <laughs> having to uh, change the diapers of someone you love, it's like all of that. Like I, you know, we were very much like 50, 50 parents. I changed as many diapers as she did. And, um, I loved it. It didn't bother me one bit because I'm like, this is this is my kid. This is yeah. my everything, you know? So it's like changing a diaper. I don't care. Cleaning up puke or whatever. Like it's all of those bad things didn't bother me a bit because yeah. um, it's someone you love. Exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to it too. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a great journey. <laughs> yeah. I have a, a few little like quick rap, like rapid fire wrap up questions for you. So what is your greatest fear? Prolonged physical pain. <laughs> Does that include going to going to the gym? <laughs> no, um, no, that's uh, yeah, that's uh, no. It's I think it's it's the thing, right? Like death itself mm -hmm. 
isn't scary. It's the idea that like I would have some horrible kind of situation where I'd be like in massive pain for six years before I die. Like that that, that's my biggest fear. Yeah, that sounds terrible. What is the lesson that took you the longest to learn? All of them. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm 50 now, and I feel like I'm still learning simple things like the difference between in theory and in practice. Like we talked about earlier. Like I, um, you, you just can't have someone teach you these things. I think you have to try everything yourself. You have to feel the pain of mistakes. And then feel the deep happiness of coming out the other side of something difficult. You know, so it's kind of like a cliche interview question. Like, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? It's like, <laughs> well, nothing. Go make more mistakes. Like, right. what, are you, what am I going to try to, like, prevent my younger self from making mistakes? No. Like, you, you got to go make the mistakes to know. Yeah, absolutely. You don't avoid the mistakes. In fact, I'd say probably the fountain of youth, the fountain of youth is to make more mistakes. Yeah. You know, that's where you learn. I love that. What are what is something that you're trying to learn more of or a skill that you're trying to get, I guess, a skill that you're trying to uh, improve or get better at currently? Hmm. <laughs> Sorry, it's a real specific question. Uh, <laughs> right now, it's JavaScript. <laughs> JavaScript. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, sorry, that's my real answer. Right now, I'm, um, I'm working on... Learning, I've all, I've been programming in Ruby for like 15 years, mm -hmm. and I'm building some new sites for selling my book and for the translators to translate my book and all that kind of stuff. And it was about time to do things in a new way. So it's, but it's intense. It's like, um, I don't know if we can use like a musician comparison, but it's kind of like if you're used to making music in a certain way, like you had a certain device, mm -hmm. you know, like you had your. Uh, whatever it may be, your Ableton Live that you've been using for 15 years and like suddenly you're doing things in Cubase or Pro Tools. It's like, it feels so weird to like be doing things in a different way. So uh, yeah, currently, like literally like today, this like this morning, I got out of bed at 5 a.m. and I started reading a book on JavaScript for three hours before I sat down to program. <laughs> uh, so that's what I'm learning right now. That's awesome. Uh, tell me about the first time that you went to a live concert. So your first concert or your first memorable concert experience. Ah, um, good story. I saw the Red Hot Chili Peppers mm. at a little club in Boston in 1987 when I was a fan of their first independent EP, and that's all they had at that point. It was like really funky, and I love them, but nobody else had heard of them, and I couldn't get any of my friends to come with me. I was even like offering to like buy tickets for my friends. Like, come on, dude, just like just trust me. They're really good. Just come with me. Like, no, no, I've never heard of them. I don't want to come. <laughs> so I went down to. I wasn't even from Boston. I was like 16 years old. I was from Hinsdale, Illinois, and here I am in Boston. And I like found my way down to this dingy club. Got there early. Um, got my, you know, had my elbows leaning on the stage, and Flea was there sweating all over me. <laughs> it was actually a triple bill with uh, who was it? Fishbone. Oh wow! Red Hot Chili Peppers, and I don't remember the, the first band, but yeah. Uh, it was pretty damn cool. Like just to be like leaning my elbows on the stage with, you know, there's flea Anthony Kiedis and just like, yeah, they were like badass. And it was when they were still like deeply funky. Have you heard like chili okay. peppers earlier stuff? It was, oh, was very, very funk. Mm -hmm. Um, other memorable concert experience is, um, when I saw the Pakistani singer named Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan, he was in New York city. I heard he was, I was living in New York at the time. I had heard, uh, He had this song called Must Must that was like on a Peter Gabriel album, and that's how I became aware of him. And 
uh, tickets went on sale. I just like bought two tickets for me and a friend. And it, I, I guess I must have bought the tickets on opening day or something because when I got there, I was like sitting fourth row center oh, wow. uh, right next to the stage. And the, the audience was like half like Pakistani people where uh, Nusra Fatih Ali Khan, this, this Kowali style of music he was doing was very like devotional. And so he was seen as kind of like closer to God than most people, you know, kind of like somebody might feel if they were in the presence of the Pope or something, right? So the audience was kind of just ecstatic and they would like throw money on stage and like uh, it was just like the the ecstasy and joy of this concert was so intense that uh, I think I was 22 or 23 at the time and I cried out of happiness for like the first time in my life. It was like the concert was so amazing. Like tears started pouring down my face. I was like, that had never happened before in my life. Like, whoa, crying out of it. Like, I just don't cry mm. to cry out of happiness because of music. That was, that was very memorable. I love that. I love stories of like, like these stories when people, um, seen their first concerts or concerts that really like, like moved them. Um, and I love your two uh, completely polar opposite of styles of shows that have inspired yeah. you. A tr- true musician. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, what is something that you're currently really interested in that doesn't have to be like business or music related? Uh, it could be an app. It could be a TV show, uh, exercise, um, an artist you're maybe listening to right now, food, whatever. Uh, my real answer? Yeah. N- nothing. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I seriously do nothing but writing and parenting like and when i say writing to me i kind of combine my book writing and my programming all kind of feels like writing it's just two different kinds of expression mm-hmm. you know it's like it's like kind of writing like writing mir- like writing uh music and writing lyrics like it's it's two sides to the same thing you know so my my creative output whether i'm writing code or whether i'm writing a book it's all writing and so um anytime i'm not parenting my kid or on a phone call like this <laughs> i am writing and that is all i do i have no hobbies i don't watch anything i don't do anything else this is it i love it, it must be nice <laughs> actually you know what there was a um there was a, again one of these random little interviews i read that i'll never forget with frank zappa mm-hmm. i wasn't even a huge fan of his music but i read this interview where near the end of his life a reporter asked him, I think he already had cancer and I think like he knew it was going to die and he was doing these interviews. And so he said, you know, have there been parts of your life that you've neglected because you've been absorbed in your music? And I'll never forget his answer. Uh, I, in fact, I, I wrote it down. I loved it so much. He said, well, what am I missing? Like, do I regret not going horseback riding or learning how to water ski? No, I don't want to climb mountains. I don't want to go bungee jumping. I haven't missed any of those things. He said, if you're absorbed by something, what's to miss? So, yeah, I'm really happier obsessing on one thing instead of trying to balance out a bunch of different aspects of my life and being a well-rounded person just isn't as appealing. It's kind of a personal question, but um, with the coding thing, so a mentor of mine recently, and I'm meeting with him again in a couple of weeks and want to ask him why he said this, but he felt like I should really look into coding but he just said a very plain like that and i'm like what do you mean like where do i even start um i guess you have any tips of um like where to start in coding and i don't even know if it's if it's java or what he even meant um it's definitely a question i'll be asking him next time 
Yeah. Um, in fact, I wrote two. Okay. If anybody listening to this is actually interested, mm-hmm. I wrote two articles on my site. I believe it's uh, sivers.org slash prog, okay. P-R-O-G, like mm-hmm. the first four letters of programming. Um, and then that should link you to sivers.org slash learn dash js because i think my okay so if you're thinking of programming what you should really do is step one learn html okay you can learn html in a day um there's a book out there called like head first html or find an html for dummies it doesn't matter there's so many ways to learn html and really it takes like a day there's almost nothing to it you got your html tag a head tag a paragraph tag U L L I H one for headers, H two for subheaders. There's really not that much to it. Do a href and you make a link. There you go. So in a day, you can learn how to make a basic HTML website or web page. Mm-hmm. So then the next thing you learn is CSS, which is the very basic styling thing where you can add some visual styling to the raw HTML that you just wrote. Um, and then that's a kind of good gateway into step three, which is to learn JavaScript. Mm-hmm. Uh, JavaScript is really just the uh, the everywhere language. I think what are, are there something like I think it's like seven point four billion people on Earth right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think eight billion of them know JavaScript. I think I think I think even there are like insects and animals that know JavaScript right now. <laughs> so <laughs> JavaScript is just the it's the everywhere language. It's in every web browser. It's used everywhere. It's going to be around for decades and decades to come. That's the one. If somebody says you should learn Python or C or whatever, just tell them, yeah, no, later maybe. But JavaScript is the everywhere language that everyone should learn first. Um, and that's it. And But I highly recommend, if you care at all about this stuff and you want to learn it, um, make your own website from scratch. Mm-hmm. Like, don't just go install WordPress, click, click, click. Hey, look, I clicked a button and now I have a website. Mm-hmm. No, instead, start from nothing with a text document and write your own, you know, open bracket, HTML, close bracket. Like, begin with nothing and, like, hand code your own HTML site, write your own little CSS file to make it look the way you want. And then if you want to make it do something besides show the words you've written, then learn a little JavaScript and that's it. Uh, that'll take you, you know, that'll last you a few years. Um, okay. I oh. think, yeah, it's a it's a great thing to do. But for you, for now, for Chris, no, <laughs> you're about to have a kid. Yeah. <laughs> you, you you just play. You, you just go play. play with your kid. I'm I'm I'm, um, I'm in. <laughs> that's enough. Uh, that's enough for the next five years. Yeah. Uh, but you know, if your kid when he's like five or six and he's going off to kindergarten all day and you suddenly have free time for the first time in five years, yeah, <laughs> JavaScript will still be around for you. But for those of you listening that uh, that are actually interested in this stuff, um. Yeah, honestly, the way I got into programming was when I was actually a full-time musician. I was a full-time gigging musician. I had been touring for 15 years. And I was just... Hold on, is that right? I was like 29. Yeah. No, no, sorry. I'd been touring for like 12 years. And I was honestly just like a little burnt out on going off, getting in the van and doing yet another gig. I was like, I had done over a thousand shows. I was a full-time touring musician. I I bought my house in Woodstock with the money I made touring. And I just suddenly got really into making websites and like learning 
programming. It just became so much fun because it was like just reaching a different side of my brain, you know, like I had just been doing music for so long. It just felt like a nice um, antidote. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like each side of my life was like the antidote to the other. I would like get all nerdy into programming for a while. Then I like go out and do gigs and I'd come home and I'd be nerdy into programming and (laughs) go out and do gigs. So, um, yeah, it's, but I mean, yeah, you got to understand, like, don't, don't think that you're doing this to advance your music career. Like this goes against most of what we've said in the rest of this conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, you don't need to know any programming at all to be a musician. If you find that you're just really, really into it and you can't not do it, well then yeah, enjoy. It's interesting though that you can learn HTML in a day. Oh, it's so sick. It's just tags. It's just, you know, like if you've ever used Microsoft Word mm-hmm. and you can like take one line and you just grab that little pull down menu that turns it into a heading or yeah. turns it into a list, mm-hmm. that's honestly all HTML is. It's just basic markup tags that say this text is a paragraph, this text is a list, this text is a header. That's about it. That's all HTML is. Interesting. Yeah, I'll definitely uh, include these links to, in the show notes because, yeah, you might be a musician out there that wants to customize and build their own website versus using some kind of template from, from WordPress or, or Squarespace yeah. or something. Uh, very yeah. interesting. Uh, so this, this one's a, kind of a, a fun, very different question. Uh, they've all been fun, but um, <laughs> I call this one the, the Hollywood Vampires. So Alice Cooper, Keith Moon from The Who, uh, Ringo Starr, John Lennon, and Mickey Dolenz of the Monkeys, they, those were the original Hollywood vampires. They would just hang out in bars and um, and just drink and have fun and try to get away from, from the public eye. So if you had cr- to create your own version of the Hollywood vampires, who would be the four, the five people that we part of your drinking or just hangout club? <laughs> I know it would be amusing for me to list five funny names. And I think in my <laughs> head I started doing that. But the truth is, I don't want to meet my heroes. Like, most of them are probably pretty shitty conversationalists. You know, like, okay, like the ones that came to mind first, I was like, well, Debussy, Prince, James Brown, John Coltrane. Like, those would be like my top four, like, hell yeah, I want to meet these guys. I would love to talk with these guys. But then as soon as I think about that, I think, wait, no, I don't. Like, Prince was an asshole. (laughs) Like, mm-hmm. Debussy was apparently also, like, a notorious asshole. James Brown, he was probably just full of himself. You wouldn't get a good conversation out of James Brown. Right. John Coltrane, maybe. But it's like, mm-hmm. so, but actually, I want to see them at work. Like, I would want to mm-hmm. sit there oh, and yeah. hear them practice or compose. Like, damn, to be like a fly on the wall when Prince was in the studio or James Brown or to listen to John Coltrane practice. Hell yeah. Mm-hmm. But they'd probably be really shitty and disappointing conversationalists. Um, so the only musical hero I can think of that I'd actually want to like hang out with and talk with would be Brian Eno off the top of my head and Bjork maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah. Sorry. That wasn't the entertaining answer you wanted. No, um, awesome. <laughs> but, actually, you might have inspired me, a new question. If you could be a, a fly on the wall. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's funny when I was, uh, I told you that I got that job in the tape room mm-hmm. at Warner Chapel music publishing um, I was a huge James Brown fan, huge. In fact, I named my band Hit Me <laughs> after him. You know, one, two, three, Hit Me. You know? So call my brand Hit Me in homage to James Brown. Our musical style, I described it as James Brown meets the Beatles. Everybody knew I was a total James Brown fan. And one day, on some regular Wednesday, um, somebody said, hey, dude, guess who's going to be here in an hour? 
And I said, no. They said, James Brown's coming in. You want to meet him? And I was like, um, <laughs> no, I'm leaving. I'm going home now. I don't want to meet. I don't even want to accidentally meet him. Mm-hmm. I was like, Harvey, you got a cover for me. I'm leaving. I'm feeling sick. It's like, I'm not actually <laughs> feeling sick. I need to get out of here now. I don't want to meet James Brown. Um, I took off and I left early that day to make sure that I didn't meet James Brown because I love his music so much that I didn't want like the real flawed human being to like taint my um, affection for that perfect music that he made between 1968 and 1974, like mm-hmm. flawless, amazing, perfect, um, you know, breathtaking music. I, I don't want, my image of the real man to taint my love of that music. So I left to make sure I didn't meet him. Yeah. I can, I can totally relate to that. Um, you know, doing, doing what I do, I, I guess I have to, you know, the privilege of being around some, some cool musicians sometimes. And there's, there's certain shows where I am legitimately a fan and I completely avoid them. I don't want to be yeah. anywhere near them because I, yeah, I don't want to taint my, uh, my experience and I just want to just be able to appreciate their music because there has been experiences where maybe someone wasn't as nice and it's changed my, yeah. my perception of them. And I don't want that with, with people that I'm a fan of. Yeah. Love that. So before I ask you the final question, I uh, just want to take a quick moment to thank you so much for taking so much time to be on the show and sharing so many great tips and, and wisdom and philosophies. This was a real a joy to to get to talk to you and have this conversation. Um, and be thanks, Chris. Yeah, I loved your questions. It's it's. I love talking about this stuff anytime. In fact, um, you know, anybody listening to this, if you've made it all the way to the end of this interview, mm-hmm. um, I don't. As you can tell, I mean, yes, I mentioned my book because you asked, but like, I'm not here to promote anything. I'm not here for the money. <laughs> so, like, the reason I do these interviews, honestly, is because of the cool people I meet. So, um, yeah, email me. If you go to uh, sivers.org slash contact, there's my email address in big letters. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> click it and introduce yourself and say hello. Awesome. I love that. Well, thanks so much. I reply you. to every email. I, I enjoy talking music and love random questions. <laughs> I, I actually have a, a question for you when we, uh, when we wrap up. But uh, the question I always ask at the end is, what's your definition of making it? <laughs> uh, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. Mm. That's it. it. I love it. That's a great way to end it. Thanks so much for, for this. And I uh, really appreciate it again, you reaching out. Cool. Um, Thanks, Chris. Hey, everyone. Thank you all so much for listening. To learn more about Derek Sivers, go to Sivers.org. All the show notes for this episode will be at makingitwithchrisg.com forward slash podcast forward slash 097 for episode number 97. We'll share links to, to all the books and blog posts and all amazing resources that, that Derek Sivers has mentioned during this episode. And if you learned something and you, you have a friend or an acquaintance or someone or a cl- fellow classmate or a fellow musician that you would feel would be inspired by this episode or learn something from this episode, please share it on social media. Tag us, tag Derek Sivers, uh, use the hashtag making it and yeah, and spread the word and spread this, these amazing, great tips and uh, lessons that were shared today with all of your friends. Until next time, spread love, positivity, and kindness in the world. And go see shows, meet people, make stuff. Peace, my friends. 